Hey guys, let's just let's all come to the agreement. Peter Sellers, Dilf. Yeah. <laughs> also, George C. Scott, Dilf. A lot of Sterling Hayden. Wow. Oh, yeah, uh, Sterling Hayden. Dilf. Listen, Doctor Strange Love, more like Dilf Love. Slim Pickens? More like more like thick pickens. Oh wow. <laughs> Secret Movie Clubbers, welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 60. The team has reassembled after a week off uh, where we were frantically putting together as we've been doing the last few weeks our uh, week-long 35mm slate. We want to hear what you thought about Defend This Movie Podcast 1 on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That was completely edited and constructed by Connor Lloyd Cruz. God bless you and thank you. Today, we are going to be talking about director runs. And what we mean by that is that often, sometimes it happens twice, uh, the case of Kurosawa and Spielberg, but a director will have this incandescent moment where they're on fire and two or three of the films they'll make in that moment will be the best things they ever did. So examples would be Spielberg did Jaws Close Encounters back-to-back, then he did Raiders E.T. back-to-back, Kurosawa did Akuru Seven Samurai back-to-back, then he did High and Low Redbeard back-to-back. There are numerous directors who have at least, Coppola, I've talked about this, did Godfather 1, Converse. Godfather 2, Apocalypse, now back to back to back to back. So each of the Secret Movie Club team members are going to talk about a director or directors and their run. And we're going to kick it off with a a short conversation about Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove 2001, because we just did a triple feature at the Million Dollar a week ago. And those were the first two. And then we showed Shining. But Strangelove in 2001, Kubrick made back to back. And those are my two favorite Kubricks. Before we go any further, who is with us? Hey, it's Daniel. It's me, Carl. Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. It's another day in life watching movies. And I am Craig, the programmer founder of Secret Movie Club. This week, we are doing Boogie Nights on 35 Thursday, although by the time you hear this, that will have passed. Then on Saturday at the Million Dollar, we are doing John Carpenter's The Thing and They Live on 35 millimeter. I'm very excited about those Million Dollar matinees. Everyone has worked them and people are coming out to them. We still have a lot of work to do on that theater, but Every week we come back, we figured out one more thing. So thank you, everybody, for coming to those. And then Saturday night, we are doing a double bill of anime on 35, Cowboy Bebop, the movie, and the 2001 uh, Metropolis by Rintaro. Those are on 35 at the Secret Movie Club Movie Theater. And as always, just go to secretmovieclub.com or our Eventbrite page. You'll see all of our events. And by the end of this week, I am determined to announce the rest of our schedule through the July 4th weekend. So please, by Friday after like 1 p.m., Go and check it out. You should see everything that we're going to do through the July 4th weekend. And lastly, by this Friday, uh, we should officially have announced, so just go to our social media or secretmovieclub.com, the return of the Secret Movie Club a Short Film Festival. I hinted at it a number of podcasts ago, and then it got waylaid because so much stuff was happening. But it is done. And guys, I don't know if I told you, but Channel 35, who we've been doing TV episodes for, they want us to do this festival. We are going to pick 12 shorts, all of us. It's going to be a committee thing. We're going to vote on it just like can or anything Sundance. We're going to pick 12 of the submissions. They're going to get screened for a year on Channel 35, and each filmmaker is going to get $100. Uh, That is not huge money, but Channel 35 nevertheless uh, wanted to get behind it, and I think it's important to pay filmmakers. So there you go. So we are announcing right now, guys, here are the rules. The theme is Los Angeles Rises. 
You can interpret that however you want, by the way. It doesn't have to be positive or whatever. Channel 35 was like, what about Welcome Back LA? And I was like, can I call it Los Angeles Rises? They were like, whatever. So <laughs> maybe, you come up, maybe you come up with a better thing. But the theme is Los Angeles Rises. So something LA themed, uh, however you want to interpret that. Just as we did our short film festival in 2020, uh, now we're coming out of COVID. So these are going to be great bookends. Here are the rules. The short needs to be five minutes or fewer. We are asking that your total budget be no more than $200 so that it's an even playing field. We ask that you just, although everything is basically loosening up and opening up, we still ask that whatever rules are still in place, you obey them in terms of, you know, shooting and health and all that good stuff. And the deadline for the submission will be Monday, July 5th at 11.59 p.m. So basically midnight Monday uh, or midnight Tuesday, I guess you would say. At the beginning of July, get in your short. We will take a week to screen all the shorts. We'll pick the 12. And then the filmmakers are going to get to come into the Channel 35 studio. I get to interview you. And then for a year, your shorts are going to play in rotation on Channel 35 with your interview. So there will be more. Look for it this Friday. As as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com, podcast at secretmovieclub.com. Today, we are talking about director runs, which is just something I've always been fascinated by because I've often noticed that the directors, often their greatest movies will be back to back. Like my two favorite Boone Wells are Exterminating Angel and Viridiana. And those two movies are mind blowing. And he did them back to back. We did a week ago, Dr. Strangelove in 2001. So Kubrick had made a few really amazing movies already. He had done The Killing, which is often considered a minor classic, Paths of Glory, which is an out and out classic, Spartacus, which blows me away because he hated talking about it. He never acknowledged it as his movie. Any other director would die to have that as the movie they were remembered for. And Kubrick is like, ah, I didn't have complete creative control on Spartacus. So I, I, you know, I don't consider that my movie, even though it's totally a Kubrick film. It's often noted that he was one of the few people that was able to make a epic without Christ, um, even though there's a crucifixion in it. But Kubrick found a way of making an epic about that time with no reference to Jesus or the Bible at all. And then he did Lolita, which I love. That was really his first total creative control movie in London. And then he did Doctor. Dr. Strangelove and 2001 back to back. How we really understand Kubrick, probably I would put forward really blossomed with those two movies. The Kubrick of complete control, doing everything, the Kubrickian themes, the Kubrickian tones. Every movie from Dr. Strangelove on is just indisputably obsessive and Kubrickian. Like hyper iconic, I would say, starting with Strangelove. I like Paths of Glory, to be fair, and I like the killing and stuff like that. But, you know, the image of Slim Pickens on the rock at 2001, like every other scene, <laughs> Clockwork Orange, every other scene, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, you know, like all these movies, basically starting with Strangelove, every movie he made is um, one of those movies that whenever I was in high school was like some of my introduction into, you know, quote unquote, high art in film. There's a time in your life when you, when someone shows you Kubrick and it's usually a dad. I don't know why. And you watch it as a teen and you try so hard to get it. And there's stuff that you like because of the imagery that you're like, okay. And there's, there's references in like pop culture if you grew up you know watching any of like the simpsons or futurama there's like stuff you're going to like would be like hey i know that and then as you get older and you revisit it it suddenly clicks more and more and that's sort of my favorite thing especially about these two like strange love is something i watched as a teenager that i was like oh this is pretty funny but i don't think it's like i'd barely say it's a comedy and then i watched it at like in film school and i was like oh this is actually very funny and then i watched it last week and i was like oh this is like the funniest thing where it just <laughs> continues to like do that same with 2001 where you watch it and you're like okay this is long and it's beautiful but it's it's a little bit dull and then you watch it later in life and suddenly the opening 
Being Ape scene, which as a kid, when I watched this on a VHS, I was like, this is the worst movie. And now I'm like, this is the most beautiful movie. People in the realm of Kubrick stuff, like ask anyone, everyone has a different favorite movie and a different reason why. And I think that's very hard. Some directors have sort of the, the general consensus around one, but I think a lot of people we talk about today are going to have like a realm of pictures that are, every person has a different sort of answer on what's the best. And Kubrick in particular, in his jump around genres, even if he sticks to themes and things that he is clearly obsessed with, um, his sort of filmography is insane in that way because each thing is completely singular in its own. I want to be very clear to our audience. We will devote at least one full podcast to 2001. So this is not the 2001 podcast. I want to be very clear. This isn't even the Dr. Strangelove podcast. But what you said, Daniel, starting really with 2001, interestingly, every Kubrick film from 2001 on had a total 50-50 divisive critical reaction, if you look at it contemporaneously. Like, Pauline Kael wrote a notoriously bad review of 2001. And just saying it was pretentious, mechanical, and was, like, just superficial. And every movie, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, Shining, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut, 50% of people would be like, oh, it's brilliant. And then 50% of people would be like, the emperor has no clothes. Every time I see a Kubrick film, it's a meal that keeps giving. I've never had the reaction of, oh, you know what? He's overrated. Or, oh, this movie wasn't as good as I thought it was. I've never had that reaction. There's an obsession with like the ratings, myself included, like Paddington 2 took the top Rotten Tomatoes spot from Citizen Kane. And then it was retaken because some guy wrote a negative review. <laughs> it's kind of a joke. I was a little bit mad. But this is weird obsession with like universal agreement with the thing. But how it'd be so boring if everyone was like, 2001 is the best movie. And instead you have like really great pieces or great conversations you have about why something doesn't work that speaks so much to like what this art can give you. And I think Kubrick's 50-50 divide makes him so interesting because a universal agreement on greatness would be, I think, so dull. And you get such great stuff from both sides because people, you can just hate it because you hate it and that's how you feel inside. You can't explain it. You don't have to explain it. But I think there's such great conversations to when you want to talk about it and explain it of these two sides that are fascinating. And I think Kubrick's stuff especially has that where there's such a... With Within that divide, some really great stuff to find. I love Strange Love. I think it's one of the funniest comedies with a really dark ending. After seeing 2001, I immediately went back to watch 2010, you know, because I remember I had it and I was, I know there's a sequel. I watched it and made me realize like, wow, 2001 is way better than this. A movie from that was made in the 60s with an incredibly amazing visual effects, brilliant sets, and 2010 felt like Alien. It felt like watching Alien. It didn't feel anything like 2001. It just felt like something else. And it kind of ruins the purpose of, you're, you're not supposed to really find out what the monolith is. You're supposed to find out by yourself. Cause this this kind of kills it by doing it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the movie. It's not great. I thought it was kind of boring. But it felt dumb, especially the ending, 2010. It was, it was stupid. I just merely like put it back and watched 2001 again, and it was beautiful. I had a nice trip, by the way, but with 2001, it felt beautiful. Well, I loved your reaction, Edwin, at the theater because, you know, I've said this, and everyone knows. I mean, everyone knows you because you're always very direct, and there's no lying in you, which is one of your most beautiful yeah. characters. I respect and honor the heck out of it. So I always know if you like something or something doesn't work, and we've talked about this before, but you'll always tell me if my suit looks awful, or you'll tell me if my projection is off, or you'll tell me if I've messed up on something. And, you know, it's hard to take, but I'm like, well, 
then it's true because Edwin wouldn't say it if he didn't notice it. But when you came out in 2001, you were like, this movie's amazing. And you had kind of a beatific look on your face. And I was like, that made me so happy because I was like, wow, Edwin got touched by 2001. It's weird because I never saw it in a theater. It felt different. And I haven't seen it in a long time. But after watching 2001, something hit me. This is like, this is like the most beautiful movie I've ever seen in my life. I, I don't know why I haven't looked at it as much carefully. Everything about it is just stylistically beautiful. And especially the freaking sets are incredible. And especially that fr- the ending where he just is somewhere else. Like, he doesn't know where the hell he is. But he, to me, he's in the monolip and he sold him aging and aging and becomes newborn. And honestly, it's the most beautiful movie I've ever seen in my life. And I, I honestly, I honestly think it's probably one of the greatest science fiction epics of all time. One of Kubrick's best films he's ever done in his career. I just can't wait for 2061 to finally come out. I've been, I've been waiting. <laughs> yeah, I was about to crack a joke. When I was a teenager, there was like a 2061, a sex odyssey on Cinemax or something. And someone in my family, I won't name who, got busted watching it at 1am in our household. It wasn't 2069? Maybe it was 2069, a sex odyssey. And I will say it wasn't me, by the way. <laughs> I was okay. not the one busted seeing it. Know, we we believe you. Just wink. No one can see the video feed. G- guys, I don't up to that. I don't up to that. I got, listen, I got busted with other, man, that story for another time. I got busted because I shoplifted an erotic novel from Crown Books when I was 13 and my parents found it and they thought it was super hilarious that instead of reading girly mags, I was reading erotic novels from the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> my brain is so powerful, man. <laughs> and they, they tried to like, like ground me and they're like, Craig, this is wrong. And I had to return the book. A week later, my parents' friends came up to me, my mom and stepdad, quoting the book to me. My parents had brought it to a party, and they were all reading it and laughing. And I was like, you guys grounded me and made me return that, and then you took it and read it? And they were like, Craig... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You shouldn't have shoplifted. I was like, I guess that's true. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's a story for another time. Starting with Strange Love, even before for sure, but starting with Strange Love, Kubrick is batting for the fences. And I think this is why I would wager one of the reasons we love Kubrick is every Kubrick film from Dr. Strange Love on just goes for it. And there's an ambition, and maybe he couldn't be any other way. I mean, you know, unless you knew Kubrick intimately, maybe that's just how he was built. But Every movie was this huge risk. Now, he was a master filmmaker. He had a brilliant sense for, you know, what stories would catch with the audience. And he talked about that, too, how he thought his most important decision was picking the story, which is why he never did anything original. He said he always adapted novels because someone had already cracked uh, the story. And he said, like, he couldn't be responsible for cracking the story. He just had to, like, read, read, read. And he read Red Alert. And he was like, strange love. Read, read, read. Arthur C. Clarke. Okay, and then they did 2001, but he it was based on Arthur C. Clarke's stuff. Read, read, read. Clockwork Orange. Read, read, read. Barry Lyndon. Read, read, read. The Shining. Read, read, read. Michael Ayer. Uh, you know, read, read, read. Schnitzler. Eyes Wide Shut. Full Metal Jacket. And I just think... When I see Strange Love and I see 2001 and everything after that, Scorsese used to say that Kubrick movies were like high opera. And what Scorsese mourns, and I don't want to get into the whole Marvel thing or whatever, but what he mourns is he doesn't see as many filmmakers making high opera anymore. And I think it's a different time. You know, it's a different time and budgets are different and studios are different. The days were an MGM would give like the highest budget ever for a 2001, an original property or whatever. It's a different time. But I do think the thing that I take from Kubrick the most is bat for the fences, even eyes wide shut, which is a very intimate, small story. That's about one of the most profound things you can get at, which is the inner lives of men and women and sort of the male psyche and the female psyche. It's still epic. He made like an intimate epic. 
So obviously Kubrick had like one of the most ridiculous runs ever because you could essentially say from Paths of Glory on, he never made a bad, no, The Killing, what am I saying? From The Killing on, he never made anything less than a minor masterpiece. Probably the most amazing run ever, although I, I would posit the Kurosawa run. Is there a moment that you know when watching someone's work, they're at a peak where you realize like, oh, this is, whether it's like the confidence of the filmmaking or maybe it's the anxiety obsession of the filmmaking where you realize something special is happening in the thing you're watching and then as you go, especially through older people's filmography and moving through it where you're like, oh, this is something's happening here and I and it doesn't, I can't always put it to words, but you like feel it. It stresses me out because sometimes you watch something and it's so good and it just hits everything you love love that when their next project's coming I almost get anxious about like, well, how will it, how will it match that? Which is never fair. And I don't think they're ever trying to match the thing. They're making something new, but it, sometimes it does that. And I, I almost like that in a movie where I'm like, how, where do you go from here? Like, how did you pull this off? So then to go through some of these runs we're about to talk about is sort of insane to think about, well, not only did they do it, but they one up to themselves in different ways because of so many of them, I think are, are different things. The man of violence, the man of action, one of my favorite directors of all time, Sam Freaking Peck and Paul. That's why I have the gun, because all his movies have been nonstop violence. And that's why I love in a Peck and Paul film, violence. From the Wild Bunch all the way through Cross of Iron, from late 60s to somewhat late 70s. So I did from Wild Bunch through Ballad of Cable Hoax, Straw Dogs, Junior Boner, The Getaway, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Bring Me the Head of Rafael Garcia, The Killer Lee, and Cross of Iron. I think it's Junior Boner. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Although I love Junior Boner, and I think I'm going to refer to it as that. Although that sounds like an inappropriate porno. I love Peck and Paul. He's honestly probably one of the greatest American directors out there. I would put Ride the High Country and Major Dundee before Wild Bunch in that run too. I think those are both great. I don't consider those two because those weren't necessarily Peck and Paul movies. They were like lower. They were like, like your standard, you know, Western movies. From Wild Bunch, that's when he became Peck and Paul, Peck and Paul, with his nonstop fighting with the studio, getting drunk on set, doing amounts of cocaine. Still makes a great movie no matter what. I think out of all these movies he's done, his last great movie is Cross of Iron. This movie I freaking worship. I showed it to my sister and she's not necessarily a war film or movie buff, but I had to show her that because it's so amazing. Didn't Cross of Iron vaguely influence Inglorious Bastards a little bit? Cross of Iron's Wikipedia page does mention that Quentin Tarantino used it as inspiration for Inglorious Bastards. I totally hear you. Wild Bunch is the first time that you get the ultra peck and paw violence, the crazy peck and paw editing, the kind of like full expression of that peck and paw theme about self-destructive men who go out in like violent blazes of glory. They just work. They honestly just work. A movie that I really love is Bring Me the Head of Ray Garcia. And that's another movie I showed to my sister. I, I'm trying to get her to love Peck and Paul even more. That one is just one of the best modern day westerns of all time. It, Warren Notes kills it. Trying to, to get money to bring this dude's head and ends up not doing it and ends up being killed just violently in hell. And um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid also has that element of two. Where, you know, there's not really a hero, more like anti-heroes in this movie. Chris Christopherson is just, as Billy the Kid is amazing, Pat Garrett has to do his job and try to take him down. Just the elements of, like, man versus man, like, trying to defeat one another is a very common thing in Peckinpah movies that I notice now. They're just fighting each other until one of them drops. 
a cross of iron is is a big one because there's these two guys that are trying to fight for what's what's right, especially the dude who just wants a piece of metal, and James Colburn just wants to get his men out of the war and get the hell out of there because he could get two shits about the Nazi army. He just care about his men, and this one dude just wants what he wants. I mean, now that's a that's a great call because even in what you said, you didn't mention the getaway, which is incredible. That getaway has a shot that I've never been able to get out of my head. That horrible shot where the husband's tied up and his wife's having sex with the other dude. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, the Peckinpah would do that all the time. He had a weird thing about that. And I'll, I, we'll have to talk about this another time, but Straw Dogs is my favorite Peckinpah. A very problematic film, but I've never had an experience like I've had watching Straw Dogs where I was like, what is, what is this? I was trying to guess if Edwin would do Peckinpah or I thought John McTernan would be another Edwin pick because his run from the 80s into the mid 90s is like Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, Medicine Man, Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance. That's just like Edwin, I feel like chef's kiss Edwin moment. Oh, I shut that down. I swung through a few. I was I was making a list of directors that I love. Because there's like, there's some of the like more obvious ones. Like I think the Coens have two runs in particular, like Blood Simple, the Barton Fink, and Fargo to the man who wasn't there in terms of like really defining their style. Before now, I just feel like every Cohen thing is a treat to me. I think Terrence Malick has an unbelievable run with From Badlands, Days of Heaven, The Thin Red Line to The New World. And then into, I would say, Tree of Life as well. In kind of the same realm as Kubrick, these like very, divisive things that are so almost spiritual that people love or despise this thing they can't relate to at all and i think malik's stuff is insane in that i think park chen wook south korean director his run of joint security area sympathy for mr vengeance old boy and lady vengeance and then thirst is sort of unprecedented in that regard but the list that i couldn't get over is i think wong kar wai from 1988 to 2004 i don't know if he has a bad film in that kind of Unreal, starting with As Tears Go By and ending with 2046. Like, what the heck? Friedkin's run of The French Connection, The Exorcist, and Sorcerer. I feel like there's a thing with 70s directors where they're working with such talented screenwriters that they just really seem to know who to pick that elevates their stuff. With Peck and Paul, like, The Getaway is a Walter Hill script, and I think the script really lends to Peck and Paul's sensibilities in a way that elevates his stuff. And that run that Friedkin did, especially playing any of those three back-to-back, is a completely, you have, like, this French Connection that's, like, literal high-octane, maybe putting people at risk for the sake of art moments of this police crime thriller and then the exorcist is a slow burn horror movie that is pitched to you as the scariest thing in existence as a kid and i think is effective and then as you get older and watch it is this very like intricate look at religion and the way that all these things in terms of themes that have no connection to the french connection but also feel so specifically tied to friedkin and then sorcerer which is my favorite freaking movie that's this sort of like man versus nature you know will they make it almost as much physical as it is mental thing look at like masculinity and stuff and i guess sometimes my thought with these directors and their shifts from genre and stuff is sometimes i much it must be so draining to spend so much time creating things because a lot of the stuff we're talking about is difficult subject matter and i would imagine working in that you must need a break and sometimes that break is maybe art in a different genre because you still are going to retain those themes because they stick with you these sort of downbeaten sad looks into inner self so the shifts in genre must almost be a necessity like strange love this sort of comedy but about sort of the perils of war in american politics into 2001 this like slow burn about the future and like how will we use what we use to succeed and are there dangers and like this technology that we're not acknowledging 
it must just be that you have to change sort of what you're obsessing over before you lose your own sanity. A lot of the times you find a run because you, you read about it somewhere, and then so you sort of go in with the knowledge of it. So it's interesting when I think of modern directors, when you sort of see one or two of their things in a row, and you realize that they're onto something, and then when it continues. I don't think they're acknowledging to themselves that they're killing it, but I think they're at a creative high point where there's a confidence to what they're doing, and I think it shows in the filmmaking, and so you kind of ride that with them. Connor and I were talking the other day about Raimi, Sam Raimi's return to directing with the new Doctor Strange movie, but especially after his Spider-Man run, which I think is very confident filmmaking, especially one and two, but his Drag Me to Hell, his return to comedy horror, it almost feels effortless. It just seems someone who is so good at what they're doing that it seems so easy for them. Something like Greta Gerwig currently is on like a streak. It's only two movies, but the, her writing credits before it are just like such a confident voice that is so singular to hers. I think these days it's almost easier in a weird way because I think when you are able to break out like that, like Greta Gerwig was, or like I, I would use James Gunn. I think he's made four movies back to back to back to back that are all great. I don't know. There's like a little more, I think, respect for, despite what people say, I think there is like maybe a little more respect for letting directors kind of do their own thing. Also run could be a product of the team you're working with at the time. I think we would be remiss if we, we said, well, it's all the director because, you know, I tend to be very director centric, but if a director over a period of time is working with a cinematographer and a screenwriter and a producer and they're all at the height of their powers, it's also possible that the run is really the run of a team and the run of a moment. We were kind of talking about that with Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson a few, like a couple months ago. I wanted to talk about John Carpenter. I think besides Alfred Hitchcock, he has probably one of the greatest runs of genre films like ever. Hitchcock, I mean, it, the, the one, two, three, four in a row of Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds is like insane. I don't know if there will ever be. And then even that, you could extend that both ways if you wanted to back to like Rear Window or even like, you know, Dial in for Murder, even earlier than that, you know. We've talked to Strangers on a Train. Rope. Uh, notorious like these movies aren't even that far back if you keep going and you can go forward too as well I know a lot of people really like Marnie but Carpenter very specifically a shorter run five in a row he made and four of these I think are like perfect classic genre films was Assault on Precinct 13 Halloween The Fog Escape from New York The Thing I don't think The Fog is quite as good as those others but I think The Fog is still really good and I think those other four are like not just top tier genre movies, but also kind of set a precedent for genre films and bigger types of genre blockbuster movies going into the 80s. And then even beyond that, if you wanted to keep going, Christine's really fun. I've heard Starman's good. It's the one I haven't seen. Uh, he made Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live. He then made Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And then he made In the Mouth of Madness, which was probably his last great film. I'll say Vampires is his last great film, in my opinion. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, you look at that 80s run. That's eight movies in 10 years. That's like the Beatles. They had their 13 albums in eight years. And those eight movies, again, it's it's The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. You know, like the least of those is maybe christine probably which is still like i think kind of an iconic movie when people talk about a car being bad they immediately go to christine which is obviously that has the book as well but i think the movie might be a little more well known probably carpenter had an incredible ability to pick dynamite stories he had a real understanding of a hook because when you think about some of the things you talk about i mean assault on precinct 13 is very hooky halloween is very hooky escape from new york dynamite hook the thing dynamite hook they live dynamite hook christine prince of darkness is kind of a weird hook but but it's still dynamite it's it's like what if evil juice <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, what if Satan was green goo? What if the devil was a, was evil juice in the basement of a <laughs> Prince of Darkness is a little little wonky, but I I, I kind of love that movie still. Uh, well, I was going to say, in fairness to what you and I are are joking about it because it, it is a physical thing, but in fairness to it, it's it's interdimensional. The hook is that the devil is anti God, which is like antimatter that has somehow seeped into our dimension, which is kind of interesting. I think, you know, even In the Mouth of Madness is a great hook. You know, like what if an author went missing and then he went to look for him and he ended up in his books? I would actually argue In the Mouth of Madness is one of the best like Lovecraft. I've actually never read Lovecraft, so I don't want to talk too much, but I have a slight understanding of him from people who love him. And my understanding is that In the Mouth of Madness really gets close to a Lovecraftian horror. I kind of see King in there. I think the In the Mouth of Madness is like the one where I guess he Carpenter used King as a, as the point of the protagonist, you know, like the main dude. Like, what if he went missing and the stories came to life? It's a little bit King. I think the King stuff in In the Mouth of Madness is more the publicity of the Sutter Kane character. And the contents are definitely more in line with Lovecraft stuff. Though the, 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 the other King thing is that King then made Max maximum overdrive which feels a little bit like him wanting to do christine himself but also uh that trailer uses john carpenter's score for halloween 3 huh but even talking you're talking about switching john carpenter himself even though all his movies are genre movies they switch within that assault on precinct 13 is sort of an action thriller and halloween's a horror movie escape from new york's like a sci-fi adventure almost he jumps around a lot in terms of how he's using genre because some of his movies are definite like bummers <laughs> and have and then some of his movies are you know big trouble or something where it's like this is an adventure movie this is fun you know there's so many directors that i love that would be more obvious like and i'll just do it real quickly akira kurosawa from drunken angel through Redbeard is to me the most enviable run for me personally even the movies that don't work in that run like the idiot and maybe i live in fear and maybe the lower deaths are still better than 99.9 percent of any other filmmakers filmography and if people haven't seen you know those lesser known Kurosawa's they're still genius I mean literally still genius and you're like wait this is the one we don't remember <laughs> this one is incredible but the three directors are really quickly wanted to shout out because I thought I'm going to use this podcast to mention directors who I'm obsessed with that I'd love other people to discover first up is Don Siegel probably the one most people know American director Don Siegel even though you couldn't really say he had a run 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 I still would say that his dirty Harry beguiled Charlie Varick uh, what Don Siegel was doing early 70s. Even the movies we don't remember that Don Siegel did, like Hell is for Heroes or Madigan or uh, Riot in Cell Block 11. You know, Don Siegel did Invasion of the Body Snatchers. People sometimes forget that was a Don Siegel movie. And discovered Peckinpah, who's a Peckinpah mentor. And there's this this string of directors. Siegel is one of them. Spielberg, weirdly, is in the, the Siegel tradition. Clint Eastwood is very much avowedly in the Siegel tradition. Don Siegel was such a good editor that the reason he kept getting jobs is he brought movies movies under budget and he only shot one to three takes of everything and he just moved on he was just like got it next got it next and when i watch seagull movies they're so taut and so stylish but he knows exactly what he's doing that that he's just someone i'm very obsessed with and there's always these crazy shots like in dirty harry when clint eastwood finally gets the killer on the football field if you guys remember that shot and he steps on his foot and the camera just goes back and it's clearly on a helicopter and it goes back and back and back and back until the football stadium just disappears 
disappears in the fog and the killer's screaming and you're like, what an idiosyncratic shot. Next, I just want to shout out this Japanese director, Kenji Mizumi, who I am obsessed with, Kenji Mizumi. And I always said that either Don Siegel is the American Kenji Mizumi or Kenji Mizumi is the Japanese Don Siegel. It's probably pointless. But Kenji Mizumi was also this journeyman director. He would he was just good. So they'd always give him stuff. But Kenji Mizumi directed the best Zatoichis. He did the first Zatoichi. He did Fight Zatoichi Fight. He did Samaritan Zatoichi. He did Zatoichi against the chess expert. By the way, Quentin Tarantino full-scale lifted a Kenji Mizumi sequence in Kill Bill when Uma Thurman fights uh, Lucy Liu in the snow. That's straight up Samaritan Zatoichi shot for shot. Is it Samaritan or is it also Kenji Mizumi did movie we know as Shogun Assassin, but people know in Japan as Lone Wolf and Cub. He did Lone Wolf and Cub, I think one, two, and maybe three. He also did Hanzo the Razor. Hanzo the Razor was the guy who played Zatoichi wanted to do a Japanese Dirty Harry, but he did, Hanzo is like a feudal cop, so he's from the 18th or 17th century. Also too, he's like James Bond, I guess, and that he can get women to admit a uh, uh, like information by making sweet love to them. And they're like, I won't tell you, Hanzo. So you just take it with a grain of salt because it's from the late 60s, early 70s. But there is a shot in Hanzo the Razor where he's having sex with a woman where it is a POV phallus cam inside a woman's like... <laughs> Like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just literally the point of view of sex. And you're watching it and you're like, am I seeing what I'm seeing? And the camera's going in and out. <laughs> and then it's like superimposed and there's this music. And I was like, I have never seen anything like this. And maybe for a reason, but I would just say um, Kenji Mizumi, you got to check out. And then the last one I want to shout out is Jacques Becker. He was actually the assistant director for Jean Renoir, and he did uh, this string of French films, starting with Antoine and Antoinette, which is about this couple that wins the lottery. Uh, then he did Casque d'Or in the early 50s. My favorite is probably Tuget Pao Grisby with Jean Gabon, which is one of the greatest gangster films of all time. We will be showing it. And then he did this incredible jailbreak movie called La Trobe, whole, which uh, was one of his last films. But Jacques Becker, no one talks about Jacques Becker. And he just had this 50s run of incredible stories, incredible movies. And they just have a feel and an atmosphere and a cinematic vibe and a grace that I love. In the realm of like animation, we should probably credit Miyazaki. Does he have a bad thing in terms of runs? But I feel like animators, especially Japanese animators, have some unbelievable runs. Yeah, or, or Mamoru Hosoda. I've always described it when I sense a director doing like directing out of their mind. It's the same feeling I get when I read a novel where I feel a writer's writing out of their mind. I actually start to kind of vibrate like a tuning fork a little bit and I lean up. And I get kind of emotional. I'm a very sensitive person, which people may or may not know, but I cry very easily. I get emotional very easily. And I just start to vibrate and be like, uh, and I really feel like the universe, they're channeling some kind of creative force in the universe and just creating out of their minds. And with those people I just mentioned, and specifically the bigger names like Spielberg and Kurosawa and Bergman and Fellini, and uh, when I feel they're like making movies out of their minds, I start to like oscillate and vibrate. And I just like, uh, I can't believe what I'm seeing. So that's the feeling. I get. And then when I'm like, oh, they made those movies back to back. Like, oh, he did Jaws and Close Encounters back to back. He did E.T. and Raiders back to back. He, you know, it's just that kind of thing. Yeah, I just get annoyed and horny. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell? What the heck? I keep wanting to make a joke about like, I get the director runs, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and then you get a junior boner. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm excited to read our negative reviews about this podcast. 
Pop Culture Final Thoughts. Edwin. I've been on a killer run myself, you know. Uh, the one I'm not proud of that I watched was uh, a John Gurliam picture called Skyjacked. It sucked. Skyjacked. I thought you were going to make a Frankenheimer thing. I was like, he had a run too. That dude. No, a- he, he did a run. He, he's a good director. That, that movie was not great. It was bad. Charlton Heston loses in a fight. No way. Gets shot by James Brolin. Why? And he bros up. Awesome. And it ends by looking at a plane in Russia. Wow. Great ending. Not a good movie, but it was enjoyable. I liked it. I'm working <laughs> on a new short with a fellow filmmaker that I met doing a kind of a hitman comedy thing I'm trying to do. The one thing I watched this week that really stuck out to me is Bo Burnham's new special. It's called Inside. Comedy special is a strong word. This is like, you sort of learn that Bo Burnham, who's a comedian, took a break from live performance for five years because he was having like colossal panic attacks on stage and the anxiety of what he wants to create versus what's expected of him because he started as like a YouTuber when he was a teenager. And so he decided in 2020 to come back into, uh, he wanted to go back into live performance, pandemic hit. And then he went on a spiraling depression. And so he decided he was going to make a comedy special in his home and he's going to do it in a few months. And it took him a year to do it. And a gorgeously shot 90 minute performance piece. He grows his hair out and doesn't shave through it. So you can see sort of when he's creating these things because his appearance changes. But it's basically this look at mental health and the state of comedy and sort of growing as an artist and the concept of turning 30 within the realm of an experience that you can't you're literally trapped inside. And it's genuinely one of the most beautiful things I've seen this in a long time. I think it's a stunning achievement from a filmmaking perspective and a comedy perspective. And it's already starting to blow up on like TikTok and stuff. So like, I think the Gen Z crowd is really taking to it uh, on top of things, but I think it's going to be something that's discussed a lot about this year and uh, I highly recommend it. It's a trip. And I also say it's, it's very funny, but it is also a difficult watch in some things. He leaves a lot of scenes in where he's clearly struggling to get something right. And you sort of watch someone having like a breakdown. It's tough, but beautiful and I, I highly recommend it i agree with daniel i saw it too it was amazing it felt like watching 2001 I, w- I wouldn't shut up about it with edwin i'm glad you watched it and enjoyed it i loved it it was beautiful i loved bull burnham i was like watching jesus like he was jesus like oh my god this guy is god he looks so handsome so last week i did not get a week off from the podcast because i still had to edit that honor majesty secret service thing and I had to, at least once, maybe twice, I'd like stop editing it and get up and walk around the room because of how frustrated mostly your buddy made me because I'm on your <laughs> your side where I think Honor Majesty's Secret Service is one of the best ones. In fact, two of our top three are the same, which is from Russia and that one. And then we'll have to talk about, because you said, and you said World's Not Enough is your least favorite. And that's not one of my top favorites, but I still like it quite a bit. And so, and it's also, it has a special place in my heart because it was the first one I ever saw in theaters. Um, And so that would be an interesting one to talk about. Also, because you haven't seen it since. Uh, Yeah, since it was in the theaters. Yeah. Uh, World is not enough. I just remember being like so not into even movies like Diamonds Are Forever and For Your Eyes Only, which I find very sort of mediocre bond. I just find them mediocre. I remember actively disliking uh, The World Is Not Enough. So I do need to watch it again and see if I remember it wrong. You don't. That's when I, when I tried to first get into Bond was was that run after GoldenEye. And I stopped until... Casino. No, weirdly, Quantum of Solace is coming out. And someone's like, I have free tickets to this. And I was like, I've never seen the one before. So I watched Quantum of Solace. And then I was like, well, that didn't make any sense. And then I watched Casino. And I was like, wait, that movie's kind of great. 
And then I stopped thinking about it. And then I saw Skyfall and I was like, okay, maybe I need to go back and try this. I'm going through them all again before the new one. So I will come back around to it and maybe I'll reappraise. Just saying, I like the original Casino Royale. Just saying. <laughs> You've seen like five of those movies, Edwin. You have no, you always talk about how License Kill is your favorite. You haven't seen like any of the 60s ones. I, I have, okay. I've seen Thunderball and Dr. No, all right. The least of the 60s ones, I would argue. And Connor, you want to you want to plug your... Oh uh, yeah, I stream video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Thursdays and Saturdays, you can also catch some nice clips and highlights on that channel. I saw a Swedish film, a silent movie called The Phantom Carriage. I'd always wanted to see it. Bergman has talked about how this had one of the hugest effects on him. A lot of people cite Phantom Carriage. And it was written, directed, and starred Victor Sjostrom, who would later be the star of Bergman's Wild Strawberries as the professor, one of my favorite Bergmans. The movie was incredible. In terms of shooting, it's a beautiful film, but it's not necessarily like watching a Murnau. I'm huge into silent films, and it's not necessarily like he was trying everything with the camera. It's it's a pretty handsomely mounted production, but from a story level, it's closest actually to like a Christmas Carol. If people don't know what it's about, essentially this drunk is mean to everybody, his wife, another woman who loves him, everybody, everybody. Uh, one of his drunk buddies says, I never want to die at midnight on New Year's Eve because if you do, you have to drive death's carriage for the next year. That's your punishment. And so sure enough, midnight rolls around. Our main character dies. This is really early on in the movie. And his buddy shows up as the driver of death's carriage and basically says, now you have to take over for me for the year. And the movie then does this great thing where it goes back and fills in the story. Well, why does he have to do that? Why is he being punished? What really was his relationship with his wife, with this other woman? And then it's like a Christmas carol into what happens in the third act. And I was very emotionally moved by it. And I was in tears and I could see why it was such a profound influence on Bergman. And I would just say to folks, I always think calling silent movies, silent movies, and we got to come up with a better title for it. It's defining a whole era of cinema as if it's lacking something. It's defining it by its lacking characteristic. And that's not what it is. These are, I would call them like pure visual storytelling movies, or I, I wish I could be like the era of pure visual cinema. So in terms of pure visual cinema, check out Phantom Carriage, because there's so much you can learn about how to make movies and how to do things visually from watching that era as always it's wonderful talking to you guys this weekend on saturday we are doing the thing and they live on 35 millimeter as a double feature at the million dollar that starts at 11 a.m saturday night we're doing a double bill of anime uh, we're doing cowboy bebop the movie and metropolis as always you can find about everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com or to our eventbrite page or any of our social media also please take a look if you're a filmmaker and you want to make a five minute short or fewer on the theme of los angeles rises. You can interpret that however you want. We're going to make that big announcement by the end of this week, and submissions are going to be due July 5th at 11.59. Uh, next week's podcast will be about, we're going to do another Pieces of Cinema. This time, we're going to talk about screenwriting, which I'm I'm obsessed with. I started out as a writer. As always, I want to thank our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz, who as you just heard, edits everything we do. So whether it's the pre-show you see before our movies, the podcast you're listening, or a side podcast, that is all going through Connor Lloyd Cruz making it tight and creative and good. Otherwise, they would be an hour and a half long and would bore the hell out of you. So thank you to Connor Lloyd Cruz. You can email us at uh, community at secretmovieclub.com, podcast at secretmovieclub.com. We want your thoughts, your ideas, your criticisms, your harangues. Maybe, maybe one or two harangues, not too many of those. Guys, have a great week. Thank you for making Secret Movie Club happen. Watch great movies. Bye, <laughs>